My name is Dave Talley, and I'm over at the La Mirada campus, for those of you who do not know me. And I am glad to be here with you this morning. Our focus this morning is persecution. And so if you want to follow along, there's an outline in the bulletin that you can follow. And then we'll be in 1 Peter in chapter 4 in verses 12 through 19. So if you want to open up your Bibles and turn to there, um, that would be wonderful because we're going to be working our way through that passage. But we've got a lot that we want to cover this morning as we think about what God is doing in this world. Just singing that last song and thinking about the nations being glad and the whole earth proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. That's going to be an exciting day that we all have to look forward to. But this morning, I want us to think seriously about persecution. We've got tables set up out there. You saw that. Um, we've got an opportunity tonight for you to come and learn more about what's going on in the world. But look at the size of these books. Right here, this is the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And some of you might be familiar with this. It's AD 33 to today, and it just tells a number of stories of those who have been martyred for Christ. Incredible book. This is one I picked up probably six to nine months ago and have been reading through it. But it's China's Book of Martyrs. And this is from AD 845 to the present. And what I love about this is it says volume one. In other words, the second volume is still being written on this one. But just incredible stories. And I think we as believers and as families, we ought to be reading these stories of those saints who have gone before us and who have actually given their lives and died. In, in the book, this book about China martyrs, it claims that 250,000 people have been martyred in China alone. In fact, from 1900, since 1900, they've had more martyrs in China than any other nation of the world. And so gospel's been advancing there, but there's a lot of opposition to that and people have lost their life. There are many stats that are out there, and this is where the World Wide Web gets a little confusing. You can find anything on the web. All you have to do is post something, and it's authoritative. And so when it gets into martyrdom, you find all kinds of figures, facts about those who have been martyred for Christ. You can go to one website, and it will claim that 43 million people have been martyred for Jesus Christ. In fact, they'll say that 50% of those in the last 100 years, so the last 100 years, 21.5 million people. They go on and talk about 300 being killed each day. Another very standard study concludes that one, there's been 1 million martyrs in the last 10 years. That would be 100,000 a year. But notice the difference in numbers um, that those two websites have. So you can find numbers all over the place. I think we as believers need to be very responsible in how we talk about martyrdom and as how we talk about persecution. There are two websites that I think are the most reputable out there, at least in my opinion. Open Doors, which their office is actually located in Santa Ana, and so they're close by. And their last yearly totals were in 2012, where they claimed there were 1,200 martyrs in that year, 180 being martyred each month. And as they look at the world, and they're gathering lots of facts and figures, they, they claim that 100 million people are being persecuted in some kind of way uh, throughout the year. And so that's a lot. The, the bottom line is, you can talk about 43 million or 300 a day or 1,200 a year. The bottom line is it, it exists. It's out there, and people are suffering 
for their faith in Christ. Open Doors goes on and makes a reference to the fact in Iraq alone, the number of Christians has dropped from 1 million to 275,000 in the last 12 years. In other words, in the Middle East, Christianity is on its way to being extinct. Now, that's if you look at the facts and figures. If you look at another way of looking at this, the gospel is going forth and people are being saved in record numbers in some of these countries. But if you watch the news, they're also being displaced. They're being driven out. And for every Christian that's driven out, we lose a missionary in those countries. And so it's hard to watch some of that. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is another website that I think is a really good resource for us. And they do not calculate the number of persecuted. Instead, the focus of their website is to encourage people to stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what they state. The reality is we'll never know the full extent of suffering, uh, but it is out there. And so today on the patio, you can learn more about this. Um, I'm really grateful for a team of people who have stood beside me. I don't have their picture here. I don't know how the final slides from La Mirada didn't make it here, but they had a beautiful picture, at least by the second service at La Mirada. But Anna's here and Pierre's here. And then we had, I think, Kurt Mariah still outside. And Kristen Peel was a part of it as well. They are the ones that have put together all of that display out there. And so I'm really grateful for them. But this is for you. This is one of those sermons where you can actually sit underneath the teaching of God's word and immediately apply it. Um, by being a part of what God is doing in this world. But then also tonight, uh, this same team has put together an incredible um, service for us, a simulated underground church service, as well as opportunities to pray and be impacted by what is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm looking forward uh, to them also leading us tonight and encourage you to be here and be a part of it. Look at this slide right here. This is uh, maybe some of you watched this video of these ones who were slayed. Maybe you've never seen this before. Each one of these individuals lost their life uh, for Christ. And I think it's important for us to think about this question. Am I willing to suffer for persecution, even to die for my faith in Jesus? And the reason I think it's important is because this is the kind of stuff we're up against in our world. Even just last night as Joni and I were laying in bed and she was saying, I really don't like it that you travel to all these countries. Um, because she was asking about Uganda, where I'm going in the fall, South Africa and Uganda. And she was saying, is, is that a dangerous place? And I was just like, Joni, just stay off the website. You don't need to know <laughs> everything. But I told her, I, nothing I've seen so far, but we're up against it everywhere. You know, even recently in our own backyard. And so it's important for us to think about it. But more importantly, we we might want to think in terms of something like this. Thinking about whether or not you would dare to die for Christ will help us think about whether or not we will dare to live for Christ. See, it's one thing for us to say, yeah, if I was there, I would be all in and I wouldn't die. But what does it mean in everyday life to actually live for Christ? And that's why I've entitled the message this morning, Um, the way I've entitled it, because we've got to step back and ask ourselves the question, are we so much a part of the course of this world? That's why we're not experiencing persecution. Because if we were following Christ, might we be up against persecution? So we've got to think not necessarily in terms of, am I willing to die for Christ or dare to die for Christ, but do I dare to live for Christ? Every true follower of Christ, in other words, if you have put your faith in Christ this morning, every follower of Christ should be able to say, I will not 
renounce Christ, even if it costs me my life. That's putting your hands to the plow and not looking back. That's taking up your cross and following Christ. And we all should be willing to say that. But as soon as we say that, I will not renounce Christ, even if it costs me my life, it forces us to think about what we really treasure in this world. For instance, think about the inconsistency of these statements. Lord, I will die for you, but I can't find time to sit and read my Bible on a daily basis. Lord, I will die for you, but I really don't have the time to make prayer a vital part of my life and commune with you. Lord, I would die for you, but I just can't muster up the boldness to talk about my coworkers or my neighbors about the gospel, to tell them about Christ. Lord, I will die for you, but I really can't spare any extra money to give to the work that you're doing here in Fullerton and around the world. I've got too many other expenses, too many other things I need to spend my money on. So as we come to a passage like this this morning, one of, our, one of the most wonderful aspects of this passage is it forces us to think about that ultimate of dying in light of the everyday of living and what God might want to do in our lives. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let me read these verses, and then let me pray, and then we'll work our way through. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone does suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord, this is one passage from your eternal word that Peter wrote to Christians so long ago. You've preserved it, and you have this church in this passage today to teach us. And so, Lord, we pray that in this moment, as we're all gathered here, that your word would be alive and powerful, and that we would be able to grow in our love for you and what it means to follow you. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We pray that our hearts would be opened up to receive fully all the truth that you want us to receive, that our souls would be nourished and that we would leave this place having met you in significant ways in our lives. And so, Lord, please work in this time. We pray you'd keep us from distraction and keep us focused on what your word has to say and that you would move in us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about just an overview of this passage, I, I think, or even the book, what we find in this book is that faithful living is what leads to suffering persecution, which requires exhortation, 
which is based on a certain hope. And so throughout this book, Peter's been encouraging the people, stay the course, stay the course. Why? Because they're living faithfully. In Hebrews, they were walking away from the Lord. And so he was calling them back and talking about the better covenant that we have in Christ. Here, people are walking faithfully and they really are up against that persecution. And where he picks up in this passage is on the suffering persecution part. That's the focus of this part of the letter. And so that's what we want to focus on and move through the rest of this um, progress that he wants to take us through in this passage. And so we come to our first point, the situation. And we ask ourselves, what are these believers facing? So you can see that that's point number one in your outline. And just look at what we find in this passage. Just looking at verses 12 through 19, you could find other references throughout the book. But just in this one section of the book, we see verse 12, fiery trial. And this is the same concept of a metal going through a fire so it can be melted down and get rid of all the impurities. That's what they're going through, that kind of, of effort. And we're going to find out it's on God's part as well. But this fiery trial that they're um, persevering through. We also see in verse 12 that this is a test. And so we want to tease that out a little bit. What, what's meant by that test that is there? Verse 13, sharing Christ's suffering. Verse 14, insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, suffers as a Christian, verse 17, judgment. Uh, verse 19, suffer according to the will of God. So just by pulling out the theme, and you know, as we think about what is the author focusing on, well, in these verses right here, it's, it's uh, obvious, I hope, that we've got a persecution theme that's taking place here. And there's two aspects to this suffering. If we just narrow in on the words a little bit, we can see, number one, that what we find is they are in an antichrist world that is persecuting them for their faith in Christ. So, again, thinking about all those terms that are used in this passage, focusing on three, sharing Christ's suffering. This has to do with Christ. And they're insulted for the name of Christ. That's the specific focus of their suffering. And then verse 16, suffers as a Christian. So we're at the beginning stages of the gospel moving throughout the world, and many of the apostles are going to actually lose their lives. So here's a picture of the beheading of the apostle Paul. Peter himself was also um, crucified upside down. Fox's Book of Martyrs mentions that all the apostles were martyred, except for John, who suffered in, in, you know, just immense persecution, but just died. You know, none of the persecution could kill him. He just continued to live through it all. Uh, they were trying. Um, Sean McDowell recently put out a book. It's called Fate of the Apostles. It's very interesting. He walks into some of the traditions and, and finds out that some of them are not as certain as others. But the bottom line is these apostles went out into the world and they really suffered for their faith. So this is a time when the emperor is Nero and persecution is really on the rise. And as the gospel goes forth, they're up against it. Listen to one historian. This is Tacitus. And in his historical book, The Annals, um, these were published a few years after this particular time period. Um, and this is what he wrote. Therefore, to stop the rumor that he, this is Emperor Nero, had set Rome on fire, he falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians. So he, he didn't want to take the blame for Rome being burned, and so he wants to pass this on to Christians. And he said, it goes on and says, Gen generally, Christians were already hated 
I mean, so this becomes a natural scapegoat for Emperor Nero. He goes on and says, in their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. It was really like a circus atmosphere, the way Christians were persecuted. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and then worried to death by dogs. Or they were nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned or as the day was coming to a close, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle. And so they would actually take these Christians and burn them as torches to light the nightlife. And so you can just see from this the way Christians were viewed and just the utter atrocities that were being committed against them during this particular time. That's what we're up against as Peter is writing this letter uh, to these believers. And this persecution still exists around the world. I just watch the news on a nightly basis and you see images like this where Christians are being displaced in various ways. We also see not only is this an anti-world that's persecuting them, this is also they are being tested by God. Again, looking at our passage here in verse 12, comes upon you to test you. In chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7, um, Peter had already written this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there's this testing that they are up against. But also in our passage, verse 19, they are suffering according to the will of God. There's this bigger picture that's not just the trial they're going through. We oftentimes see this in scripture where you've got a human level where you're seeing things and they're, being, they're going through these trials because an anti-God world is against them. But then there's this bigger picture of what God is doing. And it's that bigger picture that we need in order to explain situations like this, that God knows way more than we know. That God is at work in this world in ways that we can't even understand. That as God moves in this world, we're caught up in that and he does a work in us that is beyond our comprehension. And so we have to trust him. We have to trust his work in this world. And Peter in this passage, as well as in the whole book, is looking at this eternal perspective as it's right here, right in front of you. So as they're going through this persecution, he's encouraging them, remember your identity and all these facets of their life in Christ, but he's presenting it in such a way that this is just right in front of them. God is moving in this world and, and he's using words about judgment as well as about testing. In other words, he's just wrapping this all together. It is moving toward this day when Jesus Christ is going to be revealed. It's right here, it's right in front of us, folks. God is moving in this world. And for some, it's judgment. And that's not for the, his church. It's not condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But as God moves in this world, Christians are going to experience some of this suffering and pain that's there. But for them, it's going to be a refining of their faith. And so Peter's talking about this 
big event of end time. You can look at chapter 1, verse 17, or chapter 2, verse 23, or chapter 4, verse 5. In his eyes, the final judgment is beginning now. That's what we are up against. The Lord is refining his people in the midst of all this. So this testing that they are up against is proving who truly belongs to Christ. Who belongs to Christ? Those who obey and persevere. They truly belong to Christ. We also see it refines the faith of those who truly belong to Christ. They are refined and strengthened. And so when you think about the parts of the world, we got the top 10 nations out there that you can learn more about and pray for them. When you think about what's going on in the world and these places where for the name of Christ you're being persecuted, there are no weak, weak links in the chain. There are no Sunday morning Christians in these parts of the world. I wear a bracelet that has the Arabic letter for um, in on it for part of the I am in campaign. You can buy these um, bands out on the patio and all the proceeds will go to help the persecuted church. But when in these persecuted parts of the world, when they spray paint this noon on your house, it means either walk away from the name of Christ, give it up, or you better get out of town and you better get out quick, or you can simply become a follower of Islam. That's your options. There are no more options. There are no Sunday morning Christians in a place like that. You're either in or you're not. And so it refines and it strengthens the church. Peter wants to bring that out and that's being brought out in the world today. The point for Peter is, again though, that this final end time Christ being revealed is all right here. God's moving through the world and this judgment is either to awaken those who do not know Christ or it destroys them. But for those who do know Christ, it is to refine and to continue to make them more like Christ. For him, the same act is both a punishing wrath for unbelievers as well as a purifying love for believers. Peter is not saying, come on, just suck it up. Let's try harder. What Peter is saying is, be who you are. You are in Christ. You've put your hands to the plow don't turn back. Jesus went to the cross. You take up your cross and you follow him. Simply be who you are. If you are not in Christ, it will become known. It will become known and persecution will do that. So we find here that the people are up against persecution. They are suffering. And as we come to chapter four, verse 12, Paul, I mean, Peter uses the word beloved again. Now, he uses this one other time in the book, and I happened to preach that passage too, back in chapter 2, verse 11, beloved. And I brought out there that this is where you see Peter's pastoral heart. He is going to lose his own life, but he's watching believers right now set up his torches being lit to light Nero's gardens. He's watching all this, and so he's coming along not as a, come on, you can do it. He's coming along, beloved, that very pastoral heart. He is coming alongside of people who are in pain. And what he's going to do at this moment then is give them some exhortation because Christ is their treasure. Christ is worth dying for is ultimately what he wants to tell them in this. And so we come to our second question, the exhortation, what are these believers called to do? And this is where Peter wants to bring his focus. He wants to find a way forward as people are up against persecution. And I'm gonna make five points about this. The first one he makes is found in verse 12. 
And we have there, do not be surprised. Beloved, don't be surprised at this. When you are in that fiery furnace, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this is the life of a believer. This is not strange. This is the teaching that Christ set forth all along. And my mind went to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, where Jesus basically says there, if you follow me, you're going to experience persecution. Think about the things that Jesus said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. But in this particular passage, Luke 9, this is where the disciples proclaim, you are the Christ. That's who you are, Jesus. Now, what do they mean by that? So when you read the gospel, you watch this unfold. What they meant by Jesus being the Messiah was kingdom. Here we go. Romans out, Jesus in. I mean, that's basically what they understand. The, the Messiah is come to overthrow this anti-God world that they even lived in, in Jesus's time. And he's going to establish his kingdom and rule and reign. What they did not understand was that Jesus's coming was phase one. And then he was going to go back to the heavens. And then the Messiah was going to come as the ruling and reigning king. At this point, he's simply defeating sin, defeating death, defeating Satan, and making a way for salvation. So Jesus is going to let them in on that a little bit. And he doesn't say, I know what you're thinking, but he does. And what he says is, let me get this straight with you. The Son of Man has come that he might die. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to die and he's going to be buried. And he's going to rise again on the third day. And that's what this is all about, guys. Now, remember, after he rose again and they met, they said, now, is this the time you're going to restore your kingdom? Jesus says, still not yet. I'm going back to the Father. You're going to be my witnesses. But Jesus sets the record straight. But Jesus goes on. Not only is the Son of Man going to suffer and die, but if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and you need to be right behind me. And there's going to be suffering and there's going to be persecution. And so Peter says, this is not strange. And that's why I've entitled the message what I have today, because maybe what we ought to be asking is whether or not it's strange that we're not experiencing persecution. Because Jesus made it clear we're going to be up against it. And if we also live in an anti-God world, we aren't being torched as Christians and, and put in our you know, nation's leader garden to light the way. That's not happening here. And so there's a different dynamic there. But we still live in an anti-God world. And so is it strange that we're not experiencing persecution? So that's the first point that Peter makes. The second point he makes is rejoice. Rejoice in this. My mind went to Acts 5.41, and this is right at the beginning of the spread of the gospel by the church. The apostles are brought before the council, and they're told, do not proclaim the name of Jesus. And they said, listen, uh, we're going to obey God rather than you. And so they beat them and sent them on their way and say, don't proclaim the name of Jesus. And what, did, what was their response as they left? They rejoiced that they were able to be a part of the sufferings of Christ. And Peter is saying to these believers who were up against it, losing spouses, losing children, losing jobs, being torched to light the night, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. He tells them to rejoice at that moment. John Piper puts it this way. 
He says, the mark of a Christian is that he experiences deeper and greater joy in being dishonored with Christ than he does in being honored by men. And we sometimes get this flipped around in our lives. We so much want the honor of men. We don't want people to think low of us or think we're weird that we would rather actually dishonor Christ than to honor Christ and be dishonored by men. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is it that we treasure? When the gospel becomes so precious to us, we will proclaim that despite the animosity, despite whatever might be the response of an anti-God world, we will continue to boldly proclaim. And it shouldn't be strange when persecution happens to us. There are many reasons that the book gives to rejoice. And I'm just going to go through these quickly because we don't have time. But suffering is not random. It's a part of a bigger picture. Peter already said in verse 12, don't be surprised. This is not like God lost control. Something slipped through his fingers. Uh-oh, whoops. Sorry about that, Pierre. Didn't see that coming. I lost control. No, God is at work in this world. It's not random what's going on around us. He's graciously purifying. We see reason number two is that this is, suffering is a clear demonstration that one is in Christ. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And so there's a lot of things that we could say about that union with Christ. Our suffering, any suffering in this world, is with Christ and it's for Christ. Reason number three is suffering is the seed for a future and greater glory. So whatever's going on now in this life, we are to rejoice. Why? Because we've got a greater rejoicing that's coming one day when the glory of Christ is revealed. On that day, remember that for Peter, this is right here. He's not thinking, oh, it's a zillion years from now. He's thinking it's right here. This is what it's all about. And it's got to be on our mindsets as well. And so there's a future glory that's going to be there. Chapter 1, verse 11 and even chapter 5, verse 1, which is the next verse in the passage, actually talks about that glory that's going to be revealed. But then the fourth reason that we have here is found in verse 14. When one suffers, they are blessed. Why? It's the spirit of glory and of God that rests on them. So in other words, when they take that step of faith and stand firm, something powerful happens and God is present with them in that moment. And so that's a reason to rejoice. It's, it's amazing what God would do in you and through you in that moment. And there'll be stories to tell about that. And so he encourages them with that. But back to our exhortations, the third exhortation that he wants to give them, he says, first of all, don't be surprised. Secondly, rejoice. But then third, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. In other words, the point he's making here is that there's a lot of suffering going on in the world. Make sure you're suffering for the right reasons. Don't bring that on yourself. And again, this is where the web gets a little bit messed up for us. There's so many stories that are out there. This particular one right here, um, as I was leading up to this week, Walt was just letting me know about different stories that were out there. And this is one he sent me, and it caught my attention. And I began to read about this story. It was on some blog somewhere. And I began to read people's responses to the blog. And finally, I ran across a, a, a lady who said, you know what, before you form an opinion about what happened here, maybe you should read the court documents. And so I did. She actually gave a, a little um, posting where you could actually go read the court documents. And I did read the court documents. And it was very interesting to see the conclusion that the judge came to and why. 
And if you just, this is just the last little bit of it. You can see the bottom line. I duly dismiss this, this appeal. And the bottom line was when you read all the fine print of the course documents, this woman had been repeatedly told by her employers that you are crossing boundaries. You are not to um, engage in this kind of behavior with those who are under your care and authority in the workplace. It's fine if you do these things elsewhere, but we're, we're asking you that people who are under you, who you are in charge of, we don't want you to. And so, and she actually, the lady actually admitted that that had happened for her. And so it was easy for the judge to go, well, you, you crossed the boundaries. You'd been warned about this. It really wasn't about her faith. And then there's other ones as well that um, did not make the final slide cut, and we'll skip over that. Uh, but the fourth point that Peter's going to make here is in verse 16, where he says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be ashamed. Think about what shame does. Shame causes you to shrink back, to hang your head, so to speak, to be quiet in that moment. Peter says, no, 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 no. You don't shrink back. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. You glorify God. You continue to proclaim his name. You continue to be bold. You continue to go forth and by your life show everybody that Christ is all and in all, that he is in fact, your treasure, that he is more precious to you than anything. You don't shrink back. You continue to glorify the Lord in that name. Again, it's what Piper said earlier. You don't need the honor of men. It's the honor of Christ that you live for. You would rather be dishonored by men in order to honor Christ. Don't be ashamed just because you're being dishonored by men, you glorify God in that you are honoring Christ in that moment. And so he wants them to keep that perspective straight. But then he also has one last point. This is one of my favorite verses um, in the New Testament. And this is what Kenny began with. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so Peter is saying, I know what you're up against, but you give all of that to God. Whatever's going to happen to you, you give all of that to God while you keep doing right. And I think it's one of the most important principles in the Bible. Romans 12 really picks this up in a way that's helpful too. Don't return evil for evil. Instead, you leave room for the wrath of God. That's God's business. What happens here? You continue to do what's right. And so Peter is saying to the believers here, you continue to hold on to your cross and follow Christ. You keep your hands to the plow. Don't look back. You keep focused on what God has called you to do. You entrust yourself to him. He can take care of his stuff. You got to take care of your stuff and continue to be bold and continue to proclaim and trust yourselves to a faithful creator and do what is right. And this echoes Jesus's, the words about Jesus in chapter two in verse 23. It also echoes, echoes Jesus's words on the cross. Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit. I trust myself to you. This is all about you. Paul learned about this in his own life in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, that they learned to depend on Christ. It became about him 
And his, he was all in all. And so they're continued to continue to do, they're encouraged to continue to do good, trusting that God will remove any obstacles for loving another, as well as any incentive for revenge in their lives. God's going to do that work in them. So when they're up against that persecution, he says, you entrust your soul to faith creator, you keep doing what's right. And as you're in that persecution later on in the book, in chapter five, we're going to find the warning you got to watch it because Satan's crouching like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. So when you're up against it, don't shrink back. Satan would like to devour you. You continue to entrust yourself to a faithful creator. You stay the course. Keep on. Chapter 5 is also going to say, you cast your care on him. Why? Because he cares for you. The one being torched by Nero to light his garden, God cares for that person. The group of believers that's meeting in a burnt down church this morning, still able to smell the smoke of fire. God cares for that person. The one who's in prison on death row because they put their faith in Christ. God cares for that person. And God is refining people all over the world because of the work that he wants to continue to do in this world. The glory of God's greatness, the glory of the greatness of the gospel can move us to endure anything, anything that is for the glory of Christ and the spread of his name. And so they're being encouraged here, requiring exhortation. But all of this is based on a certain hope. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these points about their certain hope. Because we've already gone over many of them, but let me just underscore them once again. We have incentive number one is a good theology of God's purifying work. It's a good theology of God's purifying work. They need to understand that God moves in this way. Look at the life of Job and trace all of that. Caleb's in Job right now. Just trace all of that. We also have the, 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 the work of what God is doing around the world right now. There is a good theology of God's purifying work. If you talk to the average person in a persecuted church um, section of the world today and you say, how can we pray for you? Generally, they will not say, pray that our persecution is removed. What they will generally pray is, pray that we remain faithful in the face of whatever comes our way. Why? They have a good theology of God's purifying work. They know that their own lives are being strengthened. They know that the church is being strengthened. They know that God's gospel will not be stopped. And it continues to go throughout the world. We also have the promise of Christ's glory to be revealed. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 12, when that happens and you suffer persecution, rejoice, be glad, your reward is great in heaven. And so there is an incentive for this. Peter has been focused on that. That glory that's to be revealed, it's coming one day. And so you've got that ultimate promise of the glory of God that's going to be revealed in that day. Momentary light affliction, nothing to be compared to the eternal way to glory. But the incentive number three is, well, that may seem like it's a long way away, that coming glory of God. So incentive number three is found in chapter four, verse 14, where we have the sustaining, sustaining power of Jesus in time of need. And so again, we have no idea what's going to happen when we take that step of faith, but God's presence will come on you in a powerful way. And that's why people are able to be burned at the stake, 
hung on a cross, thrown to a den of lions, have their heads cut off because their sustaining power of Jesus comes on them in a way that they could not even ever imagine until they get in that moment. That's an incentive. Peter says that's there for you. God's going to do something. Paul actually learned this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verses 16 and 17. There's many passages we could look at. But he says this. He felt all alone. And he says, at first... At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He says, in that moment, everybody deserted me, but the Lord was right there. And that's what Peter's talking about. The Lord will be right there. That's an incentive for us. But then finally... If we just step back and look at the big picture of what Peter's saying in this book and what he, another incentive, a healthy fear of the future for those who do not entrust themselves to God. A theme in this book has been endure for the sake of Christ. Why? There are some who do not obey and it's not going to be good for them in the end. What's going to happen to them? Peter just leaves that question wide open, but he talks about it in other parts of this book. But those who obey, he says, keep this in mind. This is worth enduring. Why? Well, as the psalmist said in Psalm 73, the nearness of God is my good. I got God and I get him in the end as well. And so it's just amazing to think through that. But what do we do with all of this? I mean, so it's based on a certain hope. But what do we do with all this in our lives? When we think about this passage, I think one application we can have is we are to be one with them. If one member suffers, all suffer. Kenny read earlier Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. We're all a body and part of our body is suffering and we need to be one with them. And so ways that we can be one with them is pray or give or write letters of encouragement. And again, be informed. And that's what the patio is all about. That's what tonight is all about. It's an immediate application of what we can do from this passage. We can join in and we can be a part of our brothers and sisters in Christ and be one with them. But when we think about the pattern of this book, because of faithful living, the church is suffering persecution, so we exhort them and we remind them of their certain hope. Even the principles that we've learned in this passage this morning, we can write letters of encouragement to those who need to hear it. And don't think for a second that all of them can just turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 in their Bibles because many of them don't own a Bible. And you may give them Peter's words for the very first time. They'll hear some of these concepts and be encouraged. We can actually take what we learn here and pass that on to the international church where people are being persecuted uh, for their faith. But then secondly, we need to honestly reflect on our own lives and the lack of persecution. Peter says here, don't be surprised. As something strange. Jesus said, the Son of Man's going to suffer. You need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. If the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. If we live in an anti-God world, following after Christ, what will that result in? And so when we think about this pattern here, we may need to back up to the faithful living part just a little bit and say, wow, what's going on? Why are we not experiencing persecution? And maybe we can ask ourselves, Is your lack of suffering an indicator that you are in step with the world? 
In other words, if the course of the world is this way and it's anti-God, if we are to live in a way that's the course of Christ, won't there be some kind of persecution that will come as a result of that? Maybe our lives are much more a part of the course of this world then we would dare to admit. This is a good time to reflect on that. Are you boldly living for Jesus? If the course of the world is opposed to Christ, then why do we fit into this course so well? This is where my mind has gone as I've really worked through this passage, thinking about this. And so I want to skip to the last slide here. So we go back to that beginning, thinking about whether or not you would dare to die for Christ will help you think about whether or not you will dare to live for Christ. As we think about a statement like that, maybe our focus ought to be on that last little bit. And so go back, Lord, I will die for you, but I just don't have time to spend in your word. Lord, I will die for you, but I just don't have time to make prayer a vital part of my life. Lord, I will die for you, I just don't have the boldness to proclaim to my neighbor or my coworker the good news of the gospel. Lord, I will die for you, but what is that blank for you? So maybe this is a day where whatever that blank is, you say to Jesus, I, I give this to you. I repent of this. And I want to be a more faithful follower of you. I want to live in such a way that even if it goes against the course of this world, I want to know that it's for the honor and glory of your name, and that is how I want to live. So let's bow for a word of prayer. And I want you in the quietness of your heart right now to stop and think about, Lord, I will die for you, but. What, what is your but? How do you fill in that blank? Repent of that. Ask God to help you. Remember that as you walk into that darkness, the spirit of glory and of God will rest on you. Or maybe you want to be one with them. And so maybe we'll have prayers for the persecuted church lifted up around this room as we pray for our brothers and sisters. But take a few moments to pray. And then I'll close this. Lord, your word is alive and powerful. Holy Spirit, we believe that you work in our midst. We pray that you would bust through any hardness of heart, that you would bust through any darkness of thinking, and that you would have your way with us. Lord, we pray that what you're stirring in people's hearts right now, you will give them the strength to live for your glory and your honor. We pray that you would move us to pray for the church. We pray that you would bring us back tonight to continue in prayer and to be one with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, help us to repent of those things that we treasure more than you and help us to treasure you above all despite whatever it might cost us. Help us to take up our cross and follow after you with great joy, great rejoicing until Jesus comes. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.